when you walk into most public spaces in America, it isn't quiet anymore. They pipe music through. And the music's easy to make fun of because it's usually really horrible music, but it seems significant that we don't want things to be quiet ever anymore. And, and to me, I don't, I don't know that I could defend it, but that seems to me to have something to do with when you, when you feel like the purpose of your life is to gratify yourself and get things for yourself and go all the time there's this other part of you that that, that's the same part that can kind of is almost hungry for silence and quiet and thinking really hard about the same thing for maybe half an hour instead of 30 seconds that doesn't get fed at all and it um it it makes itself felt in in the body in a kind of dread Information passes through my head. I can't focus right tonight. Information passes through my head. I can't focus right tonight. Things come up, the edicts come down. Some hard to swallow. Pills make the world go round. The feelings come up. Friends fall in love. Love follows friendship. We make up or move on. Seasons change, and so do I. We play the guess who. We say our goodbyes. Patterns start over. Things come up. The edicts come down You need not wonder why Information Passes through my head I can't focus right tonight Information Passes through my head I can't focus right Sometimes it feels like a blind blind would be better for us to do like I'm wasting time constantly it's like yeah but you know it's so much funnier and nicer to not sure what it is all I'm looking for who cares till I close my eyes then I see I can see myself in You just heard the song Focus Right by my friend Benam Arzaghi. I met Benam in a 10-day silent Buddhist meditation retreat in the middle of nowhere in Texas. He has been in the room of lives before, notably to toss around with me the idea that our world is a simulation for a good six hours. Today he is back in his role as a musician, talking to a university audience about two main questions. What is melody and what makes a good one? First, a bit of background on Benam, which should convince you that as a musician, he is to be taken seriously. 
Benam is a music composer, violinist, and producer, and you can find his music on SoundCloud. He began playing violin at 6 and writing and performing his own compositions at 12 and made his solo debut with orchestra at the age of 13. By 17, he had premiered his own violin concerto and the Austin Symphony had performed several of his compositions. He went on to study violin at the Colburn School Conservatory and violin and music composition at the University of Houston. As a musician in Austin, Benam has performed original solo works for violin and voice at the Zach Theatre, composed the music for the film One Out of Thirty, worked as a session musician for local artists, and teaches violin, composition, and music production. He also has perfect pitch and degrees in computer science and physics, and teaches yoga and competitive youth climbing. So today's episode is about melody. You may have heard the saying that melody is king, which means that it's the most important aspect of a good song. So what exactly is this melody? To answer this question, Benam first takes us on a journey through the theory and history of Western classical music, explaining the ideas of harmony, counterpoint, motif, rhythm, pitch and timbre while taking audience questions and giving us examples from Western music, his own compositions, and live violin demos. Then he asks, is music intrinsic in the emotions it conveys, or is it conditioned by culture, experience, and even language? Finally, he gives us his informed take on the qualities that make a good melody. Hi, I'm Benam. Thank you all for coming today. Um, yeah, how did I get here um, to uh, talking about this stuff? So um, there was a gap in the um, week of Molotov speakers, and at the time that Neil mentioned that to me, I was reading this book. It's called Fundamentals of Music Composition by Arnold Schoenberg. Um, so I had this book around uh, for a while. I wasn't as interested in it because he has another book, um, a very fat treatise on harmony that I read in high school. Um, so who is Arnold Schoenberg and why did I find him interesting enough to keep reading him after I was no longer doing music seriously? Um, so I guess growing up, I was consistently underwhelmed by how theories of music were presented. It just usually seemed to be that like music theorists were positing whatever notion of how to make music they liked, and sometimes it mapped to what great composers did, and other times it didn't really seem to map at all. And I was like, that seems like a bad theory, um, if it doesn't actually explain the way people really write music. And so um, Arnold Schoenberg was this pretty influential um, German-born composer who, I guess he started writing in the very, very, very latest part of the 19th century, but he was most active in the 20th century. Um, and he's credited with starting um, the 
musical movement of atonality, which is where you just like chuck out all the music theory and you're like, ah, yay, we don't care about tonics, down, any, any, of, any of the things that came before, they're just like, he was like, I don't like it. The reason he could get away with this um, is he actually had probably one of the most firm grasps of harmony that anyone had ever had. He, he, like, he understood the literature, he understood the theory, he understood all of it. And so um, he was like, cool, I don't need this anymore. I can make up my own paradigm um, with which to write my own music. And so that's why I was interested in his book on harmony, because he not only gives a, a really detailed, in-depth um, explanation of the theories of harmony at that time, he also gives a critique of them and perhaps like some suggests in some ways they um, that they, they kind of lack uh, or ways in which they're unclear. So anyway, I read that when I was uh, in high school. I liked that book a lot. So the other day I was like, I'm going to read this book. And so I just like didn't really read it in any chronological order, but I opened it to this page um, and I started reading this and I was like, God, preach, this is just good. I would love to talk about uh, like a Molotov talk on this. So we'll, we'll come to the page that started this whole damn thing in a little bit. Um, but yeah, so I told Neil, I was like, yeah, I just, I can talk about what makes a great melody. I know stuff. Um, and then yeah, realized that I had bit off way more than I can chew. Um, so instead this is going to become sort of a, um, uh, what is this? It's going to be an imp improvisation on various theories of sound and song in three parts. Part one, facts. So I just to make you feel like you have experienced some rigor, we'll go into the weeds of music theory a little bit um, so that we have an idea of what composers were thinking when they were trying to write a melody, um, what music instructors were teaching young composers about when they were like, you should write melodies like this. Um, and yeah, some, some, some jargon. Some jargon. Um, yeah, and then we're going to go through all my pet theories about what makes melodies good, melodies bad, um, melodies different from other things. Um, I consider myself uniquely qualified to talk about melodies because uh, not many composers' um, primary instruments are melodic instruments. Most people who compose get to it by way of the piano. That's kind of like the gateway instrument to composition. Um, partly because when you play a piece on the piano, you're seeing a, a fully fleshed idea musically from, from the bass line to the melodic line to the inter, intermediate harmonies and middle voices. Um, so it kind of makes life easier. Um, when I started composing, I would basically <laughs> write as many melodies as possible on top of each other um, because that's the only thing that my ear was really familiar with. I'd be like, okay, this is another thing that I might imagine playing on the violin. I'll just put this down an octave so that a lower, a lower voiced instrument can play it. Okay, um, I, this this wasn't clear. Okay. You assigned me. You told yes. me that I need to be the jargon destroyer. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what is it about playing on the piano? Okay. So I guess you need to define a little bit about what melody is and why playing on the piano is not a good way to get into thinking about melody. What is it about the violin? Right. So I, I wouldn't go so far as to claim that piano is not a good way to think about melody. Rather, it also encourages you to think about all the other aspects of music simultaneously. Whereas the violinist only experiences, unless you're like, you know, playing an inner voice. Okay, a violinist will never play the bass line, because you're never going to be the lowest instrument in an ensemble, unless you're playing by yourself. Um, you will probably play some inner voices, but you will never play more than one inner voice once. It's, it's primarily, um, I guess you would call it a monophonic instrument. It only deals in one voice at any given time. 
whereas the piano is, is quite capable of voicing a bass line, a melody, and a left and right hands. And what, what is a melody? Good question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard thing to answer, as it turns out, um, and only really can be understood in, in contrast to other ideas. Um, uh, totally hard. Okay, yeah. And then we're going to have some fun. We're going to make some melodies. I thought that'd be like a fun way to like finish this off, um, just to see sort of like how it's actually not so mystical, and then there's like a pretty easy way to, to follow some heuristics to generate melodies off of like mediocre ideas. Uh, right, yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Can you read it a yes, little bit for, for, for the listeners here? Um, there is the asterisk that states, um, these parts may not be clearly distinguishable, their titles potentially misleading, and their contents similarly bloated with caveats like these. So, on we go. Part one, the facts. The facts. By the way, I like your design. That's thank you, thank you. I may have spent a little bit too much time thinking about the font. Um, Lado Light does a really nice job. Um, good timing. Cool. Um, right. So, so we're yeah going to talk about how, and if you go to music school and you take like a music theory one class and a music theory two class, these are the kinds of ideas that are going to be presented to you about how to make music. Um, as we talk about them, okay, again, well, 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 yeah, let's ask some questions about this, these ideas. Um, are they, the first is, are these definitions descriptive or prescriptive in nature? Um, the, the dichotomy there being a, dis, a descriptive um, theory would be one that simply tries to describe what's occurring and makes, um, makes no claims about how one ought to make music. Um, or rather just like, this is what people seem to do when they make music. Um, alternatively, a prescriptive approach would be, this is what good music looks like. This is how you make good music. Um, the reason I pose this question to you now is because I don't think they knew. Um, they were kind of, they, like, most, most music theory is presented to you ambiguously in the sense that it neither seems to conform totally to, to any, like, accurate description. A music, but it also doesn't really go out of its way to actually arm you with any useful prescriptive ideas about how to make your song music. Um, both things that I think would be interesting from the perspective of someone who makes music for a living. Um, right, and then how universal are these music theory concepts? Do they, do they actually seem to describe music across different eras, across different genres? Um, Spoiler alert, I don't think they do. Um, and the final thing is, right, okay, who's supposed to care about this formulation of music theory? Is this for people who consume music? Is it for people who make music? Or, as it might turn out, is this for people with PhDs who analyze music? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, okay, yeah. So what is a melody? Um, the first thing you can do is ask Google, and several people have stuff to say about what a melody is. Um, Merriam-Webster, has like a sort of like legal uh, cover your ass sort of <laughs> inclusive description. And they say, a melody is a rhythmic succession of single tones organized as an aesthetic whole. This actually, all those words are in the right spot and they all are there for a reason, but it also just doesn't mean anything. Um, we'll, we'll see in a minute why, why that's not a bad definition. Um, Wikipedia is also pretty into it. They're like, a melody is also called a tune, a voice, or a line, um, but it's a linear succession of musical notes that the listener perceives as a single entity. So they're kind of pointing at the same thing that Merriam-Webster is. They're like, 
organized as an aesthetic, aesthetic whole. Um, the listener perceives as a single entity. They're like, yeah, go for it. What is linear about it? Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Good. We'll get to that too. So this, that's the, the notion of linearity. Can <laughs> if you if you play one melody to a person and record their response, and you play melody B to the person and record their response, then you play both of them together. It has to have a superposition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In a base of superposition principle. Not quite. Um, I like this audience. I should just talk to music. Talk to physicists about music. Okay. Right. And so so for me, I think about melodies in terms of like what I'm trying to induce in a listener if I'm making a piece of music. And the melody is the thing you want your listener humming after the concert's over. Like it's something memorable. It's something that they will latch onto and be like, I like that concert. Also, I remember something about it. Um, this, of course, has pretty strong implications for what kind of things work and what kind of things don't work in a melodic context. Um, of course, okay, melody is like, talking about what makes a good melody is like talking about what makes a good nose, like aesthetically. It's kind of interesting, but really you kind of care about the whole face and, and, and where everything is. We'll talk, you know, like, like there is, there is something more holistic going on when we experience beauty um, in any context. Music is no exception. So, so really melodies in isolation are kind of, um, uh, don't make sense. Right. Okay. What is it not? What is this idea? You mentioned, okay, what's linearity? Um, so there is more jargon that we can use to kind of contextualize where melody sits in the space of music and, and why we think of it that way. Um, I like to think of all of these words as sort of um, signposts, guideposts, reference points that you can use when you're looking at a piece of music to try and organize it in your mind. I'm not convinced that this is like the most elegant, like, you know, minimal, uh, like, description link of what you need to be able to characterize a piece of music. This is just what people have been using forever, so this is what we got. Um, so the second, the second, okay, what melody is not? Melody is not harmony. Um, what did I say harmony is? Uh, which concerns itself with these structures, also known as chords, um, that emerge from notes played, sung, rendered, simultaneously. Um, theories of harmony can be thought of as considering the vertical axis of a piece, while melody considers a horizontal one. So this is this is sort of what they're what they're pointing towards with this notion of linearity. Um, in like the, the visual representation of music, you have a, a music staff that reads from left to right. And so across time, uh, you move from left to right. And, and so a melody would be something that occurs horizontally. It's like da, 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 da. Conversely, harmony is, is whatever you see if you have multiple voices or multiple instruments or just more than one note being played at the same time. You can like kind of pause time, look at like the the frequencies occurring basically and say what kind of um, what kind of um, intervallic relationships are going on right here. Um, and then from that uh, a whole massive loaded theory of how to move from one chord to the next has emerged. Um, and that's 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 a whole different animal. That's what that's what his other book was on that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, the, the book that I read in high school was like three times as thick as this, and not once did he mention melody or form or anything about music beyond just like how notes are analyzed vertically and how you move from 
vertical stack of nodes to vertical stack of nodes, et cetera, et cetera. So tell me if I'm oversimplifying this, but if you pause at any given time point, can you collapse down all of the stuff that's happening across all the frequencies <coughs> to one main node? And you do this for all times and then the reduced succession of notes that happens when you do this reduction is the melody? Mm. I wouldn't say so. Because um, this notion of collapsing will still produce, so okay, so like a single, a single note versus multiple notes is kind of an ambiguous idea mm. if you're thinking about it physically. Because what's occurring physically is, is even when you have a single note, yeah. um, those of you familiar with the harmonic series know that there are actually overtones occurring yeah. on top of this note. So to consider... What about just the fundamental frequency? Um, you, okay, so you're saying, say we have a vertical stack of notes, you want to collapse it onto each constituent note's fundamental frequency? Yeah, and then somehow you have one fundamental frequency for each of the notes in the chords, mm -hmm. somehow collapse that too into one, I don't know, I don't know that part. Okay, I have, I have. So, but like, so like, uh, we're gonna keep piano, like, uh, one that is a note, but if you play like three, that's a chord, and each chord is vertically stacked, right? Yeah, yeah. Then, then I, the, the horizontal aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but how can you that's, that's what my question is, because he says on his slide that it's not the structure of chords. So how do you... Melody, Me melody is, not, is not the... Melody yeah. is not. So if you have like three notes being played at the same time, mm -hmm. well, I'm really thinking about this from a very mathematical slash physics Well, okay. What number do I so, assign? Okay. To? Yeah, okay. So, okay, let's first listen to an example of harmony. Uh, oh, I'm back. No. How do I do this? I don't use slides enough. Come back. <laughs> While you're doing that, I wanted to give an anecdote related to your uh, your definition that was about like how hummable it was or something. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that that reminded me of I had a, an old bandmate. He had a, a few bandmates who were big metalheads and they cared about really complex technical stuff, and then a few of us who cared more about sort of simple melodies and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we would always fight about it. And I remember once one of them jokingly said to me, like, oh, so what makes a good song in your, in your head? Like, it has to be whistleable or something, like mockingly. And I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want a melody that you, can, that you can leave with after the fact whistling. Okay. Put a, put a note in that. Um, uh, that something akin to what you're describing is, is what, again, motivated me to say I could give this talk. Um, okay, let's listen to an example of something that's like pretty uncontestably harmony more so than it is melody or anything else. Um, in other words, we hear this piece of music and it seems to just be this succession of vertically stacked chords um, that sound good. They sound good. But, but okay, as you listen, um, try to pinpoint a melody. In other words, if you were done listening to this, what would be the thing that you would from the only female bassoon player ever to appear on the Red Pass circuit, Madame Remy. And a row the sun back in the sky. Lie a rose, I'm home again, rose. About a thousand kisses Chapel bell 
trying to sing the melody from that. I think if we or, did do that or, vertical compression, it would just amount to following one person's voice for a while. Okay, so okay, what do you this this idea of vertical compression, that's a good point. So so harmony is is trying to trick you perceptually into not zooming in on a particular voice. So kind of like how um, what is it that the 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 human eye only actually processes in high fidelity, like something the size of your thumb if held at arm's length. Similarly, our, our audio, our, our like our um, aural perception is not like able to process infinite amounts of information equally. We'll, we'll tend to be like, oh, there's this thing, there's an object, there's like something that I can distinguish from other things that are going on. Um, so, so there's these are all sort of like competing paradigms for how to manipulate that perception. Melody says, look at me, ignore the other stuff. Because you're going to remember me, and you're going to hum me later on. Harmony is like, it's going to sound good. It's going to obey the laws of harmony, which are many. Um, but you're not going to be able to hum it. So then there's a third thing. There's a third thing, and this is like where just like people in the Baroque era went a little too far. Um, and this is called counterpoint. Counterpoint is sometimes called polyphony. Counterpoint's called such because it's sometimes called note against note. Um, polyphony is implying that there are many voices singing at once. Um, the the uh, rough mythology for how counterpoint came to be is like in the um, early medieval era, people would go to church and they would sing and they would only be able to sing in unison. Uh, just like the same note um, because you were trying to praise God. It wasn't supposed to be this flowery, over, overly aesthetic experience, but rather a spiritual one. Um, but, you know, even the monks got kind of bored with that. So they're like, yeah, we can do octaves. You know, that's that's like it sounds basically the same. They did that for a while. They're like that's still boring. Um, then they started to introduce intervals, um, like a fifth or a third. So that's one note. That's an octave. It still kind of sounds the same. Here's a fifth. And here's a third. The the thing that's happening physically there is that the ratios between the two frequencies are getting more and more complex. If you sing the same note, it's a one-to-one -one ratio between the two frequencies, right? It's the same, it's the same frequency. Um, an octave is a one-to-two ratio. One is vibrating twice as fast as the other. Um, a fifth 
it's a two to three ratio. Uh, let's see, a fourth is a four, four to three ratio. A third would be a five to four ratio. So you can make successively more complicated or in the realm of music theory, dissonant intervals. And so slowly the monks were like, yeah, dissonance is all right. This is cool. Um, but eventually they were like, I can't tell who's singing. I want to be able to tell who's singing when we sing. And so they're like, okay, maybe there are some rules we can use to actually force the opposite effect on the listener. So instead of harmony, where you're like, I don't know which voice is doing what, like every time the notes change, it could just as easily be that like, you know, the tenor hop down here and then the other one up there, like unless their voices all sound vastly different, it becomes ambiguous. Counterpoint attempts to achieve, attempts to achieve exactly the opposite, which is to say throughout the whole piece, it would be preferable if every voice sounded, uh, <laughs> funny. Um, sounded distinct. And if I wanted to, I could just follow that person's voice the whole time and not be confused about who else was singing what when. But yet, still, there'd be this like harmony occurring between them. So what you were saying about collapsing, this is the kind of funny thing about counterpoint, about harmony, and about melody, is you can kind of use them as lenses to look at any piece of music and satisfy yourself to some extent. Um, let's look at an example of counterpoint. This is a, okay, so just to preface, this is a piece for violin that Rachmaninoff arranged for piano. Um, and I think it honestly sounds better on the piano and I almost never say that. Um, but it, he added a few extra voices and, and he does a good job of sort of emulating the, the style of counterpoint that was most common in the Baroque era, um, but still referenced and, and utilized later on. Um, this is a visualization that I really like because the different voices are represented in different colors mostly. So you can kind of see or map what you're hearing to what you're seeing.
I anyway. feel like I could watch this for a long time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have so many questions though. Go, go. Real quick. So some of the symbols in green are solid, others are hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, also, how did they decide, this person who uploaded this video, did they decide which note belongs to which voice or was this composed to be distributed across multiple players? I mean, here isn't it literally left hand, right hand? Um, so, so there, there are many, many, many ambiguities about how you would notate something like that. Um, yeah. Short answer: um, If the person did their research who uploaded that video, they were mirroring what's in the score. Um, there are ways um, we'll using notation to denote what a voice is by which way the, the stem of the note head points and like what's mapped together. And you can, even if you want to say you're writing for piano, you can expand what the, the typical two, two staves into three. So you have multiple voices going on and, and leave as a um, tedious exercise to the pianist mapping out those three staves onto the hand. There, there are lots of different ways you could do that. Um, all, all of which would beg the question after you go through all that work, did we actually perceive it as multiple voices? Or did something else happen? So what you were saying, Neil, about collapsing at any given time, say, well, that's a good, oh, this is a great example. Um, this is also outlining chords or harmonies right now. If you were to collapse all of these things, remove the rhythmic variations, and just analyze it harmonically, it would be obeying the rules of harmony, and you could play them as like an almost like chorale style thing. Um, so, so part of part of the tricks of the trade to be able to make voices sound distinct um, is uh, variation in the rhythms. So you're not moving at the same time. Um, that's one of the things that um, contrapuntal or counterpoint wants to imply uh, to someone trying to use counterpoint is like, don't move at the same time to the same direction in the same way. Try and stagger, try and like make it so that the lines sound distinct. Um, so harmony seems to me like multiple people who kind of have like the same mind, but here it feels like two people who are playing with each other, but they have kind of more of an independence. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Independence of voices would be another way of critically characterizing counterpoint. Um, whereas harmony is very much they, they move together, think together. Um, yeah. So so there are there are these three ideas. Um, First, first confusing thing to point out, um, counterpoint's actually composed of multiple melodies, right? If you took one of those things out and played it by itself, it should still sound good, maybe even memorable. You, you might have to question how memorable you want a single melody in a counterpoint to be, um, else it um, become more prominent perceptually than the other ones. Um, wow, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the mind fuck about Bach. Right, right. So I, don't, I don't know what to focus on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Melody. Yeah. And I mean, I would argue that like we can't process everything that's happening. That's one of the reasons it's like it's so stimulating. Is it's like it's it's too much information at once. But if you were to slow down and if you were to analyze it, you would see that everything is working harmoniously. Everything is working together in a way that like constructs this like strange, like aesthetically pleasing whole. That like when you when you like cut, like expand or collapse into like higher or lower levels of analysis still sounds and looks great and it's like I don't know how he was doing that like clearly his conception was something far beyond what you hear and it was something like in a higher dimensional space I would say right like I, th- I think when he would sit down to compose there was a clear order to how 
the entire evolution of the piece would proceed and how it was like, so this is, right, this should go on to, uh, there's like this idea of a vertical and horizontal axis, right? So, so I think Bach, you could say, was very much comfortable simultaneously considering both, both axes of space while he was writing. He was never like, this melody sounds good. God, I don't know what to put like underneath this as like a harmony. Um, okay, um, another interesting historical note. Uh, counterpoint supersedes harmony historically. In other words, eh, with the exception of like, uh, at least in Western music, the, the, the rules of counterpoint emerged out of sort of like the, um, the Catholic mass setting and into the public. And retroactively, people were like, okay, we use these rules of counterpoint. It's almost like they seem to converge on these like rules that we can analyze vertically. We'll call those harmony. But the people who were writing like, like Bach didn't know his harmony because harmony wasn't really codified. He was following rules of counterpoint. Well, so you mean counterpoint precedes harmony? Yes, it is. It says supersedes. Does that mean comes after? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> comes before. Counterpoint comes before. Um, even though typically harmony is taught before counterpoint, um, counterpoint is the earlier um, paradigm. Okay, now I have to talk about another piece of jargon. Um, what is that thing? Oh, thank you. Exactly. So, what's a motive? Um, and why is a melody not a motive? Um, I like to think of a melody as sort of like a musical sentence. It's a complete thought. Um, what that means is kind of nebulous, we'll talk about that more. Um, whereas a motive, or a motif, depending on how you want to call it, um, is like the smallest structural unit possessing thematic identity. Um, that is like, it's like the, it's the shortest thing you could walk away on. It's like, the, like anything less than that, you just feel like it's a note, I don't care. But there, you can make pretty short motives if you um, introduce it to the listener correctly and, and sort of enforce it. Also, almost all melodies are constructed using motives for reasons of sequence. But, you know, the canonical <laughs> example of what is a motive. Alright, so this piece is like, it's it's annoying. I hate this piece because it's so good. Like, you can listen to it for the first time, you're like, this is great. You listen to it the like, second time, this is great. You listen to it 15 years later, you're like, how is this still good? I like know this piece backwards and forwards, but there's still new stuff going every time. Um, so. The first thing he does is like, here is my 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 motive. I think um, theorists call this like the gestalt of the piece. He was like the first person to to use such a small idea to um, <laughs> motivate um, or inform the entire structure and thematic material, the whole symphony, like the whole forty minute long symphony. You can find variants of this motive everywhere. It's like a key that unlocks the entire piece, um, and we see that as soon as he introduces it, he's like. Here's our motive. I'm going to use it now to construct the first melodic phrase that has some nice contours in it, like follows like your normal rules of making a nice melody, but it's made off of this tiny little piece. Okay, let's talk about decision making. Because there, so this is this is where melody is actually simple is really really hard to do well. Um, because if you remember the opening, he states the like he states the primary motive. Where is it? He states it twice. 
Yeah, this also kind of looks like a Markov chain. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Through transition probabilities. Okay, no. so, so he goes, ba 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 twice. Um, he could have done that again. Like, I, I think the most interesting way to look at a piece of music is like, why not any other configuration of notes? Why not do the same thing again the second time he states it? I mean, he's doing it on a slightly different interval, so there's already some variation. You could argue that's enough variation, and otherwise let's keep the same uh, the same format. He doesn't need to. Besides not to. It works just fine. We've already heard it. We know we... we like, we're expecting something. And then he's like, no, I'm just kidding. So there's like, there's a little bit, there's a little bit more urgency. And he's like, I'm also going to keep using this motive. I'm going to make it bigger. I'm going to make it bigger. And I'm not done yet. So... And in the baseline, <laughs> yep, it's still there. He's like, oh, yeah. By an orchestra. Or... Uh, I think it is. They kind of fudged a few things, so I was looking for a better recording, but we'll, we'll do it what we can. Not, a, not other recordings have the same visualization. Um, fun fact about this piece uh, I think he had a concert where he premiered over like three and a half hours of music. So he had like his third symphony and his like, fourth symphony and like a piano concerto, and like there were some poor people who just sat through like three and a half hours of Beethoven's music. And not to say his other music isn't good, but like just like kind of like tossing that one in there. I don't think does it justice. Anyway, um, that's so really fun. Well, yeah, three hour concert, right? Uh, like like brand new Beethoven. That's like if like Kanye was like three new albums. <laughs> cool. Uh, maybe not for some of you guys. <laughs> okay. What was the point of this? Motive. Motive um, as the building block for melodies. Um, you could maybe argue. So so, I think from from a compositional standpoint. Here, Beethoven's trying to challenge himself by restricting what he can and cannot do to this like small motivic element. It's not always that um, restrictive, and, and usually you can find many great melodies that are like, eh, I'll just like you know meander away from the primary motive or idea um, at at the service of just like good melodical content. So, would you say that a motive is like a phrase in a sentence? Yeah. Um, so I was actually thinking, how, how far can we stretch the analogy between, like, written, like, you know, verbal language and music? Um, I, okay, so the reason I'm asking this is, from a neuroscience point of view, I'm, I'm already suspicious that we use some of the same faculties in our brain to process. Absolutely. Like, linear, um, not when I, like, time series mm -hmm. data, especially when it comes in through our ears. Yeah. I feel like we might be using some of our language processing to to make grammatical sense of music yeah so if you can write music such that it can it can uh, leverage our existing skills for grammar it might end up I think I think some of that is happening to an extent um, the the issue comes in when whereas um, 
words and grammar map to specific themes, ba -ba -ba -bum, doesn't mean pass me like the coffee, right? It, it just, yeah. It's just this, this thing. So I think there's, there's like half of that's being hacked and then maybe also like um, some sense of um, trying to, to pattern recognize in a, yeah. more, in a more sort of like geometrical yeah, sense, yeah. right. I read this, uh, read about this study once where they hooked people up um, and they had them listen to, so if they're really fluent in a, in a language, they would have them listen to recordings of the language and suddenly there would be a blatant grammatical error. And they, they would do the same thing with like music mm. and the same part of the brain was firing if you introduced like a, the wrong note okay. suddenly because it's like a big so difference the, from what they expect. Yeah. Put, put a pin in that. That would make me, um, that makes me want to ask the question of like, is music a universal language or not? Had they listened to that kind of music before? Or is music sort of similar to all other languages in that you have to learn it and hear it before you can identify grammatical mistakes? Um, I, um, I had a question about the bubble bum. Mm -hmm. So the emotion that arises in me, I can't even put in the words, but it's like maybe like some fear or s s some negative mm -hmm. thing is going to happen like okay. mm -hmm. I have apprehension. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. yeah apprehension maybe. Okay. Uh, is that like common across everybody or what's like? I, I think that's a really hard thing to um, prove or disprove in any sort of rigorous way. The main problem being that like music like this in the mainstream is really strongly associated with that. You know, if like someone barges into a room and you like just need some like, you know, music that's not copyrighted, you're like, yeah, opening of Beethoven's fit. Everyone associates that with being kind of scared, right? It's like, it's loud, it's um, like the whole orchestral sound, and it's, a, it's outlined in the minor triad. All things that we kind of associated with something ominous or, or um, dangerous. I was never convinced as a kid that intrinsically like minor triads are scarier than major triads. I think you can, you can invoke some like really um, sad, anguished, Melancholy emotions with with major triads if you, if you formulate them the right way. So I think I think that's kind of a learned association. Um, that's my unpopular take on that. Okay, what if what have I been spewing on about? Um, now we kind of know what a melody is. It's like this complete musical thought. It has some you know linearity to it. It has something that allows you to distinguish it as a whole as compared to just like sound. Um, and it's made up of smaller stuff, like motives, usually things that a composer will take, tweak, and, 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 and use to uh, ensure that enough cohesion exists that you can actually remember it. Um, getting close to the point that I want to talk about. Um, and it's not harmony, and it's not counterpoint. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, I have a question about the parts. So, like, how the motive? It might be different in everybody, but for me it was an emotion. Mm -hmm. so, so melody is a, a time, um, like di different emotions that are in your time. Like, ooh, I'm sad, happy, I'm sad. So what is the thought that is being conveyed at the end of it? Like, for you, after you hear two minutes of that, what is the thought that, that is input? Uh, like for me personally? Yeah. I, I mostly experience that music as exhilarating. Um, like I the, think of like a victory rally. 
like a military victory rally or something like that. I mean, I think so. Yeah, there's there's kind of well, and so this is this is the problem, right? It's like um, music's not a codified language, right? And that like things don't map to anything else specifically, but we we necessarily feel this need to use um, some sort of like analogy, like this is like that. So it's like what you're describing, like those those large marches. They're they're um, usually like rhythmically dominant. They have like a full orchestra, a full band sound. There are some similarities. Yeah, just, and, and just it's supposed to be a little scary and intimidating. Sure, maybe. I mean, at the time, yes, Beethoven was trying to get a rise out of people. Um, his music was a lot more aggressive. I think you could you could definitely like call it aggressive. Um, but then again, there's kind of this like, is that a function of the way these notes have been organized abstractly in space before they've been performed, or is that something that performers of this type of work know to instill via some sort of less obvious mechanism of like just like I don't know I don't know what they do right but like maybe they're like this is how we play this piece to make it sound scary because that's what we know people think will make it like sound good <clears throat> I don't know um, all right so caveats problems reasons why all this might just be total horseshit um, question number one can you have harmony without melody so the first thing that I picked um, was just like uh, that barbershop quartet on the far end of the spectrum in terms of like being homogenous sounding. Um, usually, there's there's. Um, well, I had a quick thought about yeah. your question. I feel like when we listen to most like popular music these days, if it's not instrumental music, then there are words that come with it, and it's a very complete description of exactly what you're supposed to be feeling. Like there's information about ah, oh, I had a breakup or whatever. There aren't too many different opinions about how it made you feel because it was made very explicitly. Um, if the music is in accompaniment with like a movie or video, you know exactly what's going on. But I feel like just this music by itself kind of leaves room for you to feel however you want to feel. I mean, there's a spectrum of things that you can feel. That's not. That's definitely not going to feel, make you feel morose or sad. It's very energetic. But your imagination has like more room, so. What if we could historically tell you that that was actually Beethoven's breakup song? Must have had a really bad relationship. <laughs> so some people do things like this, especially like in the literature, you'll be like, oh, this was the song that Brahms wrote because Carol Clara Schumann didn't love him, or like things like that. And so you'll, you'll, you'll all of a sudden have, you know, just like this like host of um, preconceptions about the piece that would maybe change the way you would interpret it, and then maybe change the way people would interpret your performance of it. Um, it's, it's kind of subjectivity all the way down. I think, um, which which is why I've never really like found it too interesting to ask like why does it make me feel this way? Because like the same piece of music can make me feel two completely different ways depending on how I'm feeling. So it's like, hmm, is it the music? Is it me? I don't know. Um, right. So so this this clip, there's there's a problem with this idea of harmony in that no matter what vertical stack of sounds you have, there is a bottom note and there's a top note, and and so these constrain. The wall of sound, and they're more easy to disambiguate um, than voices in the middle, just kind of by merit of being on the top and the bottom. So, like this opening. It's harmony. But if you needed to sing the melody there, I would sing, Can anybody find me? Somebody to love. That's the top voice. It's pretty easy to point like pin out. Granted, you could say they might be doing that intentionally because they've added a few p 
pieces of rhythmic variation against the harmonic backdrop to bring it out of the texture. But the moment you do that, you're kind of sacrificing, sacrificing like the the harmony quality of the music because you're inadvertently emphasizing or or, or um, drawing attention to one bit more than the other. And then, oh yeah, can you have count on the I don't even remember what I put here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a few. It's cool. Um, So even in that single line, Bach is hopping around enough so that if you wanted to, you could construct, construct chords and harmonies out of that. It gets even worse once you have more things going at once. And because one voice is lower, typically a harmony is, is, most, um, is informed most by where the bass note is. Um, the lowest note tends to dictate what kind of analysis you perform in the harmony. One of these voices is higher than the other ones. Oops, you can't get around that. So there is, there is, depending on what you're more familiar using to interpret a piece of music, you might hear this as like really noisy, chattery harmony. You're like, why? Why is there so many notes? But like, It has like yeah. And every time he starts a new melody, it starts from the beginning, right? Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like I, I hate and love Bach. Like at the same, every time I tried to play it, it's, it's just I just failed miserably. <laughs> but it's just like I have so much respect for, like you said earlier, he was thinking in a, on a different. And he was level like, he was known for like something like this. He probably didn't premeditate. He was he was supposed to be a, a, a highly gifted improvisationalist. So he would sit down. He'd be like, "Oh, give me a theme." He'd he'd play it in one hand. Yeah. He's like, "I have I have a whole schema for just like constructing a fugue on the fly." And he was just, duh, 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 duh. At that point, you know, it's probably like muscle memory to an extent because he was he was a really gifted organist. He could perform. Yeah, that's like what his day job was. He he was a church organist, and so while like they're like shuffling around or moving something, he just sits there, does some counterpoint. That's just what they do. Um, anyway, okay. Right, so these are kind of interesting ideas. They might also not be that interesting. I don't know. Uh, yay, time for pet theories. Um, okay, well this gives everything away. I'm gonna pretend that I didn't do that. One presentation mode. There's like this cool like click by paragraph button that I didn't even know. I was like trying to format multiple things and give them all. This is a disaster. Um, right, so we know what a melody is and how to spot it in the musical wild. Um, now we can think about more interesting questions. Like, is there a way to distinguish in like within the set of all possible melodies, good ones from bad ones? Um, we'll immediately ditch this idea of good and bad and look for something a little bit more concrete. But you know, um, it might be a good proxy. Uh, right? Yeah. Can we derive like a pseudoscience of what a good melody is um, by considering the human voice and the human brain? I'll give you an idea of what I mean by that in a second. Um, that all, that's all just a fancy way of saying, can we hum it? Um, and then does the extent to which melodies, uh, to which melodies can be subjected to a universal aesthetic paradigm have implications for the idea that music is a universal language? In other words, if we can't find music, like universal qualities even for a melody, um, is, is music a universal language? Is like, what is, why do people do that? Are they, are they just being romantic or is there something more to it? Um, Cool. All right. Universal qualities. Uh, they're like, I guess 
Yeah. Any questions? No. Okay. Three or three or four dimensions, depending on whether or not you are a songwriter or just a instrumental composer. You have rhythm, you have pitch, you have timbre, and then like you were saying, you have lyrics. Um, so rhythm, pitch, and timbre are all kind of different ways of organizing the same physical phenomena, right? It's all just like um, sound vibrations in time, right? Rhythm is like slow enough that you can dis disambiguate between distinct ones. Pitch is when they're so close that you just like uh, you perceive it as a single entity. Um, timbre is how prominent different um, different harmonics in the harmonic series are. So that's um, timbre is how we can make different vowel sounds. Um, like if I go wow wow wow, the fundamental frequency is the same, but you hear this this changing of timbre, um, which is me. Um, emphasizing more of like the higher overtones when I open my mouth and then like muting them when I close my mouth. Um, this is what allows us also to like distinguish individual voices, say that that's a flute and not a violin, etc. etc. It corresponds to the shape, the exact shape of the wave, even if the frequency is the same. Yeah. So is timber the amplitude? And no, it's the shape pitch? of the wave. I, I think you could say it's the amplitude of the overtones. So, so when is the relative distribution of the amplitudes of the overtones? Yeah. So if you do a Fourier series um, and you have all the amplitudes of the overtones, depending on how you distribute the amplitudes, when you come back to the normal space, you will see that the shape of the wave has changed. So you can be playing the same uh, principal uh, tone, but depending on what the distribution of the overtones are, the shape of the wave will be different. So if you play the C, whatever, on a piano, it's going to sound like a different thing than if you play it on the violin because the shape of the wave is different. The distribution of the overtones are different. The overtones so are still the same, but the amplitude is not a single frequency? Not necessarily. No, like, no C's in the wild will be a single frequency. You can you can construct one with like a sine wave on a computer. Okay. Um, but with like a tuning fork. Yeah, but very rarely will you, you, you never see that occurring naturally. But that will pretty much always be the fundamental, right? Um, I mean, you, you, our ears can usually very easily pick out the fundamental. That's why we decide that pitches across instruments are in the same octave. As we're like, it seems that they have the same fundamental frequency. Even though as a kid, I, I was kind of like, I was inclined to call BS on that as well. Um, because to me, like a variation in octave on the piano, just like, I was like, they're the same thing. They sound so similar. Like, like they, they're, they're, you know, struck in exactly the same way. Like, you know, it's. To me, like the difference across instruments on the same note was much bigger than the difference across octaves within the same instrument. Um, so I kind of thought, like you know, fundamental pitch not as interesting as as this characterization of like the, the shape of the overtones. Um, when they write out to like play a C on your violin, they're referring to basically the fundamental. Yes, yeah. exactly. They never even address that. They're just they don't they like you don't even know that harmonics are a thing. Um, which why would you um, need to know? I have a question to something you said yeah. a few minutes ago. You were talking about the major and minor triads. Mm -hmm. What were you talking about? Oh, um, okay. So, so like, I'm just want to make sure. I, I think I'm understanding. Yeah. So like, uh, that's a minor chord. Yeah. Um, and then it would be a major chord. Okay. And right. And you were saying that the association of positive negative emotions is learned. I think it's learned. I think it's total horseshit. Um, I like well. Just think about the amount of music we're exposed to, yeah. um, especially in a context where music is used to 
heighten or amplify certain attitudes already being presented to us through visual media. That was a very complicated way of saying most music we hear comes through movies. Um, and they're, they're never like, as a, as a film score composer, um, I'm not going to start from scratch and be like, after many hours of contemplation, this scene seems to me to be best represented <laughs> in the abstract by these specific <laughs> intervals. Instead, I'm going to be like, have they seen Jaws before? They've probably seen Jaws. I'm just going to riff off of Jaws. That's going to scare them because that's what the scene needs. So there's, there's this like learned vocabulary of, I've heard this before. I recognize it now in a slightly altered form. Um, that is, I think, the bread and butter of, of film scoring and why now most film scores almost sound interchangeable because they don't even bother. Okay, no, this is a really interesting thing. Next time you go to watch a movie, see if you can spot a melody. You will not be able to spot a melody. At best, you will spot a motive. And the motive will be so banal and forgettable that you don't really notice it unless you go out of your way to find it. And that's on purpose. These, these musical constructs of motive and melody are designed to grab your attention. And, and as a film score composer, that's not your job. Your job is to work subliminally with the rest of the, 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 the work. Um, contrast that with maybe opera, where there's a much more explicit symbiosis of motive, melody, and, and the, the affectation or, or emotion trying to be conveyed. A really good example of that is um, like works by Wagner. He was, he was known for eh, inventing, but not really, uh, the idea of a leitmotif, where you would have a motive that was associated with a particular character. That way, whenever they walked on stage, it was like, bah, 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 and like, you hear that, you know, like, and that's, that's been used to death too, especially in like the early half of the 20th century that was mapped just almost verbatim onto um, film scoring. They were just like, oh, we'll just do what Wagner did. That works. Um, yeah. Uh, this, this made me think of like, uh, if you hear like someone screaming or something like that, that brings emotions to me. Okay. So that's kind of a criticism, I think. No, what okay. What you're saying is like, I feel like, you know, the tone of something like an animal screaming mm -hmm. hearing yeah. something like brings emotions. I think it's kind of midway. Like, I agree. No, I, I totally agree with this. So I think there is, right, there's some inevitable overlap between like purely natural like phenomena of sounds and like uh, I, I I yeah I guess you could say emotions um, that that we that we know intrinsically um, I think for example atonal music yeah it does make everyone feel a little uncomfortable and I don't think that's entirely learned or um, I don't know I mean I think I, we're assuming that you can't or if we're if we're saying universal that means intrinsic, but I think maybe this language could have kind of become universal, or at least relatively, pretty largely spread, more so than any single language. I think, I think, yeah, distinguishing between intrinsic and universal is important, because if it, I think intrinsic is the more interesting question, because universal just means we all know it. Like, any language, if everyone speaks, it's universal, that's not interesting. But if, like, we were all born knowing how to speak English, that's intrinsic. That's super interesting. Um, and I think, I think you're right to some extent. Like, well, loud noises evoke more emotion than like that didn't do anything for me right just like cool but like if someone like came in here and like roared like a lion like that would be scary um and and i think yeah you would be short-circuiting any sort of like intellectualization of what i just heard i think that would be really funny <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so i agree i think i think there are to some extent um um yeah, I agree with what you're saying too, though, that there's some sort of cultural. Um, yeah, I just, I would, I would argue against but you to say that like scary sounds in the wild tend to manifest more as like minor triads. I, I, I call BS on that. Um, but loud sounds, for sure.
um, strident sounds, probably, right? Um, sounds that are, are like, yeah, you know, like the, I, I'm sure there's like a set of sounds that are more scary to us than others um, in a way that you could probably identify. Um, anyway, rabbit hole. Cool. It seems like something that might even be literature on now, like experiments with babies and seeing how they react to it. <laughs> yeah, I want to take like people from all around the world or some, some like tribes that live in the. <laughs> totally, totally. Isolated and like. Play him some music. And yeah, see yeah. Right. These experiments. It's like this are, is this is a. Would you say right now? It's like so against. I've never thought about it. Right? <laughs> if, that, if that is learned or not. Um, but so for me, it's very much very natural. Okay, this is you know sounds sad. This sounds happy. Right. And and I guess what I guess my 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 dad taught me that, and it just made sense immediately. But I don't know if that. I think you could. Relevant. Yeah, I think you could make. You could probably make a strong argument that there are some sounds that sound more pleasant than others, and that would refer back to this this notion of like um, simple to dis or like harm, harmonious consonant intervals to dissonant intervals, right? So like the way that the way that you find those intervals that the Gregorians were using is you just walk up the harmonic series. So that's me muting the first um, the first overtone. So I'm cutting the string in half. So everything's still vibrating except for the fundamental frequency. And if I cut up uh, in thirds, everything's vibrating except for the bottom two. You'll notice the notes get closer together, and if I were to play them all at the same time, if I were to play the first with the second, the second with the third, we would, we would experience less and less consonant intervals. Um, so like, that's still pretty consonant. Still kind of consonant. Not bad. This kind of s s begins to stop making sense. This, unless you're into that stuff, you know it sounds bad. And if you want to make it sound really bad, ah. <laughs> um, so so like those kinds of sounds, I think you could say are intrinsically grating. Um, they just they just um, maybe don't sound scary. Um, or sad, but are repulsive. You know, they just, you'd have to, it's a, it would be an acquired taste. It's like something that's bitter, maybe. Um, like the last example, you can hear the beating. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> to just add on to that, so this was us talking about timber expressing uh, narrating emotions in us. Hmm. Does rhythm also has... You've got, you've got so many people who are like, ah, oh, we know the heartbeat of our mothers from such an early age. There's nothing more ingrained and, and primal than rhythm. Yeah, they might be right. I don't know. There are many rhythms that are super interesting. Like, <laughs> By the way, uh, the heartbeat rhythm is not very, like... It's not regular. It no, it, like, it fluctuates a little bit. That's where it came from. It would be the most regular thing you could exactly. imagine hearing, but it's not. Right. Well, and I don't know. Maybe, the, maybe our sense of, like... Um, uh, total evenness and rhythm is also contrived. What if perhaps we... Like respond more viscerally to something that does fluctuate, and those. Well, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the difference between the. Mm -hmm. That's not. You don't. You can't use that in like music because it. It's okay. Have because the gap jazz? between the lap duke is not a factor of the gap between that and the next. Sure. Sure. Right. So no. Exactly. Like none of it. Yeah. No, it's like, I think it's just like a just so story. Sure. I mean, you could say, though, at least, like, you know, barring, you know, scary events in the external world, there is um, regularity to when the heartbeats occur. So, so we have some notion 
of, of a regular rhythm and maybe even find that regularity placating because it's like oh we're like in the mother's room but again it might just be a just so story it's um, just pattern recognition we like yeah, patterns yeah. right right yeah right so like there there are so many different ways that we can come at music um and i don't think any one of them ultimately is like the the prima facie like like the primary one that we would actually be able to ascribe as most completely describing the intrinsic qualities of music. I think that's maybe one of the reasons it is interesting. Um, right, so you have rhythm, pitch, timbre. These are the knobs that a composer can tweak when they are writing a melody. Um, and why do we need to tweak knobs? We'll talk about that in a second. Blah, 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 blah. Right, okay, and let's redefine. So, okay, we'll, we'll come back to lyrics in a second because they're a big problem. Um, they, they kind of change the whole paradigm of how you would construct an interesting melody um, in that... Uh, in the same way that a melody draws your attention, um, words do that. Um, orders of magnitude more than lyrics, uh, or than, than, than sounds do. Um, I actually had a problem as a kid. I could never remember lyrics to anything. I wasn't paying attention to the words when I listened to music. I could hum you the whole thing, but I had no idea what they were saying. So apparently most other people focus on the words. Um, right, so let's instead of good, consider what? I just have an example. So for, uh... My entire life growing up, I listened to American songs, but I didn't speak English very well. Mm. So it was just a, a melody, and then only after I learned English, that was that was also my first thing. What did they say? First, I'm understanding what, what they're talking about. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Yeah, and that's like again, it's like yeah. there's um, we don't have the ability to consciously process everything that's happening in a piece of music, um, whether that's like at the lyrical level, the sonic level, whatever. Um, so so there's kind of yeah, like the idea that, that music can can map for everyone towards the same thing, whether it's a motive or... Okay, yeah, let's look for melodies that sound distinct. In other words, like it doesn't sound like we recognize it as compared to other similar melodies. Um, it's memorable, because we remember it. kind of goes hand in hand with being able to recognize it. You can't recognize something you can't remember, but whatever. Um, and this is, this is my personal spice. Um, is gratifying across multiple listens. If you just had the first two criterion, you would have a bunch of really catchy, really shitty melodies. So the idea here is that instead, you can, across multiple listens, continue to enjoy the melody as you become more familiar with it and start to notice different aspects of it. So it has depth, um, if you will. Yeah, okay. So this is why we care about the motive. The motive is a nice way of, from a... a compositional standpoint, having a heuristic that allows you to repeat stuff. Yeah, 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 you know that. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen this already. So the idea here is that like you take an idea, you repeat it. Maybe you change it up a little bit. How long do you guys have? I'm just gonna keep talking. I'll just leave this. <laughs> um, so yeah, you you want to, okay? Can I talk about it yet? I think I can talk about it now. Um, the yeah, yeah, we can, we can talk about it. Cool. Um, the the bit that I was reading that made me want to give this talk. Now I regret having read it. Um, so, so this is just like, um, a, a chapter called construction of simple themes. Um, 
I think he means values. Uh, he says, variety must never endanger comprehensibility or logic. Comprehensibility requires limitation of variety, especially if notes, harmonies, or forms, or contrasts follow each other in rapid succession. Rapidity obstructs one's grasp of an idea. Thus, pieces in rapid tempo exhibit a lesser degree of variety. There are means by which the tendency toward too rapid development, which is often the consequence of disproportionate variety, can be controlled. And he gives some jargon terms. There are ways to take a small motive and like stretch it, turn it upside down, basically use it as a template while like manipulating it so that you as a composer can feel confident that there is coherence across the melody. Because you're like, oh, it all comes to the same thing. This can still go wrong, but it's a helpful heuristic. Oh, so it's a way to introduce variety while keeping an underlying element fixed. Yes, that's what Beethoven was doing in his Fifth Symphony. Like, that's like, you, you can't get a better example than that. Um, right, and then he's like, intelligibility in music seems to be impossible without repetition. While repetition without variation can easily produce monotony, juxtaposition of distantly related elements can easily degenerate into nonsense, especially if unifying elements are omitted. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, he basically goes on, this is the part that got me, he's like, um, he was talking about how in the transition from the Baroque to the classical period, Baroque music is all the fugues that we listen to, classical music's like Mozart, or the classical period is Mozart. Um, he's like, composers in the style of uh, classical music hide the fact that they write great music by making it like simple, repetitive, and, and so, okay, let's look at what that means. See if you can spot the motive. See if you can spot the variation. Um, and we're going to come back to this in a second after we talk about the second thing that might be universal across melodies. Oh, this is. Hey, I can't. I can't hear the melody. <laughs> <laughs> terms of just the opening rhythm. Da -da -da -da. That, that is maybe perhaps the most you could produce this um, before it becomes incoherent. Um, first he gives it to us uh, without much pitch variation. The notes are really close together. Ba -da -da, ba -da -da, ba -da -da. That's a lot of repetition. That's the same thing three times. Um, then we have this leap. Um, The next thing that happens is, now that he's done something repetitive, he's like, okay, I have, I have some wiggle room. I can do some new stuff. Um, he's still obeying, okay, I'm going to go back and talk about the second, second universal, possibly, potentially, 
universal um, quality. You need to be able to sing it. And this has actually very specific, there are specific things that allow you to be able to sing something and other things that don't. Um, the first is, I wrote, control the highs and lows. This is just like the range across which the entire melody spans. What's the lowest note? What's the highest note? If your lowest note's blah, and your highest note's ah, you're not going to have a good time singing that. That's going to be really not fun. Um, <laughs> usually, really great melodies constrict themselves to a really small band, um, like usually less than an octave. Um, if you see a lead more than an octave, you can begin to consider that melodic passage slightly virtuosic. Um, especially if it's being sung, just because that's a lot of that's a lot of work, um, and the layperson doesn't tend to have the kind of facility that that would make that feel easy. It would start to feel hard. That might be intentional. That could maybe be something you could use. Yeah. Can we whistle in approximately the same range that we can sing? It depends on your whistling technique. Yeah. I, there are like so many different ways to. I actually have like two types of whistling for like higher and lower. So if I have to like switch right at the the break between those, I'd like not be able to. Whistle very well, but yeah, I wonder if yeah. more things are whistleable than are hollable. Would you say you have a, like a falsetto for whistles? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I would say I have like a like an anti-falsetto for whistles, but whatever. Um, so that's the first thing. Don't don't make people like scream really high or go too low. It's not fun. Um, the second thing is jargon alert: stepwise or pentatonic motion. Stepwise is if you look at a piano, you look at the white keys, and you just move one white key up or one white key down, that's stepwise. You can also call that diatonic motion, um, if you wanted to. Uh, that ensures that you're not changing pitch much. It's, it just makes it nice and smooth, as opposed to, like you, yeah, instead of like being disjoint. Um, or pentatonic. So pentatonic um, is, I can play stuff for you. So this is a, like a stepwise scale, just a major scale. There are seven distinct tones between the octave, and that's pretty cool. Um, we recognize that if I wanted to move stepwise, it's it's the motion's really small, right? Um, pentatonic is the scale you get if you just like use the first five overtones. So you think it's like. There's actually, there has been some study of ind indigenous musics across the world, and this scale, the pentatonic scale, pops up regularly. Because it's easy to sing, it's easy to harmonize, it's easy to hear. Um, anytime you like listen to like an indie pop tune, like, whoa, 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 like they just, they just like, if you're stuck and you need a hook, just throw on a pentatonic scale, and you're good to go. Um, but so that, that kind of motion will help catch the ear. It's very easy to process. Uh, yeah, and then don't hop around too much. Because um, that makes life, again, difficult for the vocalist. That's sort of what you want to consider. Ah, phrase length, one breath. Um, that's the other thing that would really kind of confine a melody if you're writing it for an instrument, um, that maybe the instrument itself doesn't have that constraint, um, is you want space for someone who is humming this after the concert to breathe. Uh, otherwise, it's just a kind of it's like a run-on sentence, right? This manifests in, in, in things that look and they're even like termed like punctuation in, in sentences. They have like there's a like a, a there's a, a formal musical sentence that has a period or like a half whatever cadence, and there are like specific rules governing how you you mediate those spots where someone breathes. But that's really all they are spots where someone breathes. Okay, now we'll go back and listen to this all over again. 
disaster. Just, just... Stepwise motion. Breath. Back to the same thing, just slightly transposed. Stepwise motion. Means we have a cadence. This is just like finishing the idea. Okay. First of all, that's classy as fuck because he like starts the new phrase before like the last one is like it's like petering out. You get this sort of like um, the green on top of the purple. That's really nice. That's really nice. And so now he's already evolving the idea, but it still sounds very the same. And then he subverts expectations. He's like, let's keep you guys interested. New idea, new rhythmic structures, new everything. Anyway, so that's, I would put that in like my top five really well-crafted melodies. Cause it, it like, it's, it's like this weird sort of hard to characterize um, proportion between like new stuff, old stuff, easy stuff, hard stuff. Um, and it, like, there are like a thousand different ways to get at it. What is, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Also, symphony number forty. Right? Uh, the yeah, yeah, I don't know why I looked up thirty nine at first. No, I mean it's just like oh, the whole thing. So many, such a high number. Oh yeah. Well, and this is like I mean, if you guys are familiar with Mozart, he wrote this like, what did he die when he was like thirty three or something? Yeah. What? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He he died very young, um, even though he produced a massive amount of music. Yeah. What have you guys done before? <laughs> 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 Side scroller, and you're like, hop from no <laughs> <laughs> you're like a Mario one. <laughs> Beethoven will be the hard level. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I do want to listen to Ode to Joy just because, um, in this idea of the, this, this set of rules, um, Ode to Joy is like it's like the, the most parsimonious, elegant way of, of applying them. It actually is. Breath. Okay. So let's see what he did there. Yeah, but that's from his ninth symphony. Yeah. 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 What did I say it was from? Oh no. Just... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's it's extracted often, but it's like yeah. So, um, rhythmically, super even. Okay. So he has he has he has options. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with music notation? Would it be useful to look at? It was like a what? Notation, just like like looking at the score. Um, I think oh. it's interesting. So yeah, he is doing as little as he possibly needs to to fulfill these criteria and still make it hummable. Um, everything moves setwise. Is that true? Almost true for the entire opening statement, right? So so he has there's there's already a little bit of repetition, right? We have a smallest mode of like, and he's like, we'll just make a scale. We're fine. He's, he's not worried that we'll forget this. And so then he has to cadence. This is what you would call a half cadence because it doesn't resolve back to the fundamental note, but it leaves you hanging, basically. Um, and he could have just kept using quarter notes. Why didn't he just do... He could have, but it's just like 10 times better with that slight bit of rhythmic variation. And then we're just like, okay, we're just gonna do it again. Again. He's like, he's like, he's like so confident that this is good. He's like just not worried at all. 
to the tonic. So it's like this like perfectly proportional presented complete thought. It's a complete thought, right? You should play the complete thought for us so that we can be sane again. Okay, in a second. Well, so so then then he has like um, this. You could think of as like the 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 um, uh, uh, what is it called when you take like the first bit of the idea and you begin to um, there's a, there's a technical term for this, but he's taking like the first half of the of the original idea and 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 kind of like improvising over it. So he has like and if you look at those little eighth notes, this this on the second beat. That's just an embellishment. It's basically just doing. So excuse me. He just adds a little bit of newness, a little bit of extra, a little bit of something to keep you interested. And I love this. I love this. Okay, so if you look back at the beginning melody. There's actually, there's a bit of a connection across the line, right? So if you wanted to only move when there are new pitches being introduced, you'd have. So he kind of takes that and, and, and makes it a, not new idea, but it, like, it's like, it's like, a, he's like, oh, you know, plot twist. Uh, so, okay, back to the, the second half of the idea. He pulls you across the downbeat. He's like, I'm, 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 I'm impatient. I want to get back to that beginning. But it's not a new idea. It's in the original theme. Yeah. He's just, he's accentuated. Um, and they put it out. Yeah, and then it goes crazy. But um, like almost everything there is stepwise. There's that one leap, and that one leap is where you want it to be because you're like, I want to get back to the main theme. And he's like, we're going there. We're going there a beat early. I know you want to go back there. It's crazy. It's good stuff. Um, yeah, we missed a little bit more. Yeah, we missed a little bit more. I actually have other things we can listen to. Okay, so yeah, these two ideas. Um, I tried to look up exemplary melodies that are in the pop setting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, this is a good one. Uh, I'll play it on the violin after we listen to it first. Uh, the funny thing is, most pop music, you don't need this much attention to the intervals, the variation, this, that. Because if you say this, if you repeat the same thing over and over again with different lyrics, you're achieving the same amount of variation just across different dimensions. Anyway, Actually, are kind of interesting because they don't, they're not so cut and dry. But like, so what he's doing, uh, 
That's all within the span of just five notes. And in fact, he's adhering to a pentatonic scale. He's not playing that fourth note that I played. He's just... Slight bit of rhythmic variation. A little bit more variation. And then he like uses an extension of the range to give it a little bit of like novelty, a little bit of like it's 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 really an emotional tool, right? Like you 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 get a new note. It's higher. It's the peak of the phrase. It has this really nice contour to it that still doesn't sacrifice of like the ease and intelligibility of being able to sing it and remember it. It's really good. It's good stuff. Um, oh yeah. Okay. This one's slightly more virtuosic, but it's Michael Jackson. He can do what he wants. Um, so I'm not gonna sit you through the whole verse, but the chorus is. The chorus is where it like is just. Should we go straight to the part where there's a key change now? Everybody knows this tune, right? Repetition. Slight variation at the end. Rhythmic variation here. Okay, how big of an interval span is he using? Not that much. Like, it's actually the exact same span as the last thing you listened to. He doesn't do the same thing with highs and lows. Um, you could argue because the arrival is at the beginning of the chorus. He doesn't need to bring it any further with managing his, his top or bottom note. The, I guess, if you, if you are thinking in terms of melodies, you don't, again, you don't need to introduce the same amount of repetition, um, but these I like because they kind of do. These would work as instrumental melodies really well. Um, this one's a great one. This. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let it to your heart. Then you can stop to make it better. That's what I call a complete musical pot. That's like, it's. Again, he has like a, a great control of the highs and lows. Most of it's stepwise. There are actually there are more leaps in this than than usual. Um, they're very like again melodic. One of the things that you need or should consider doing when you put a leap in your melody is not putting another leap right afterwards. Um, otherwise, it's gonna sound like you're like Whoa! it's like kind of just jarring. Um, he doesn't do that. I don't think. Yeah, if any time he leaves, he stays where he is. pauses in there for people who don't know how to control their breath and want to sing along, they can just like, between each one of these. It's good. It's good stuff. Um, this one's nice because, okay, let's see. Every day it's a 
getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. I hate, I hate, hey. Every day is getting faster. So from a compositional standpoint, he's like, I can use this exact same melody. New lyrics, same melody. Fine. But maybe three times in a row, not so much. So. We get a new melody, but it's still predicated on the same motives that constructed the first melody. So he's like changing the intervals maybe, keeping the rhythmic structure. And then we get a return to something that's familiar. It's like, so the idea with repetition really is that you're teaching the person the melody as they listen to the song. That's actually what's trying to be achieved by this notion of repetition in the service of intelligibility. It's like, let me teach you this song. I say, you say, I say, you say. Let me do that, blah, blah, blah. Right? Um, so good. What was I gonna say? There was something. Oh, yeah, pet theory time. Um, and then we can just stop talking about this. Uh, one of the interesting things, I think, is how the language seems to inform the rhythms used. Um, my pet theory is that, depending on the language that you speak, you will prefer emphasizing certain parts of the measure or the beat. Um, so like if you listen to, that's a good example. The problem with this pet theory is there are plenty of things that have disproved my theory um, <laughs> that I just try and ignore. Um, but I think there's still something to it. Um, let me see if I can find something. This isn't actually a bad example. Um, in that, so for the English language, I feel like there's not as much um, of a clear arrival in a sentence, right? There are, there are small points of inflection when I speak, but never am I like just tilting headlong towards a single word that probably exists at the end of the sentence. This is a product of the grammatical structure of the English language, right? Subject, verb, blah, 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 as long as you want. Um, maybe use some inflection to keep people interested in what you're saying, but ultimately, um, it kind of has this sort of like, um, I would say almost like funky, groovy quality to it in that you, um, you're never hammering home what you're saying on the beat over and over and over again. Um, just because that's not the way the structure of the language seems to, to lend itself to be understood um, idiomatically. Alternatively, um, so I was going to do like an essay on this in high school. Um, there was a Hungarian composer who did a lot of um, ethnomusicological work um, grabbing like folk melodies from, from Hungarian singers and incorporating them into his songs. And I guess something um, idiomatic to the Hungarian language is this like strong emphasis on, on top of the note, on top of the note. Um, Um, and it sounds so. So this is this is where I would argue against the notion of universality of language as a, of music as a language. Um, in that we again we're kind of processing using our, our our speech muscles to some extent, and and those are different depending on the language that we speak. Uh, so this concerto, for example. I've heard this before. I probably played it for you. 
hear like there's like this kind of like digging into the downbeat. This is notated in the score. Maybe this sounds to him familiar and idiomatic. When I first heard this piece, I was like, that sounds wrong. These should come before the beat. There should be pickup notes. The way in English you're like da 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 da. You have this like sort of like rhythmic inflection towards something else, whereas here it's just like murmur, murmur. People people don't like talk like that in English. Anyway, pet theory. Do I have anyone music for you guys? I'm not going to let you leave until you play us one of your OCs. OCs, original compositions. Oh, do I have played at the Zach Theater? No, I'm not going to play that. Your I should. I just want to say your examples are all perfect, like all the visuals and stuff. Cool. Right. Thank you. Thank you. They were very painstakingly and carefully curated in half an hour before this. <laughs> I guess it helps that I've like seen all this. Okay. Yeah. Before. Just just play something. Okay. Like you. I I if you want I can like nitpick something that I've made and tell you why it's not good. Um, no, just play something that you think is good. Okay. Uh, you don't like the beat on this one, but I think it's kind of fun. Uh, this, I don't obey all the rules that I've just put forth. I'll just, I'll just state that out, right? Um, I'll listen to this one, it's fun. Times of Because it's 
not as interesting to me as trying to work on the, the production software. Um, is there anything I do? Oh, okay, I can play something that actually does obey some of the rules that I was discussing. How are keys organized? If I may ask. They're not. That's for sure. What is an Austin reader? Yeah, it's podcast. My pet project, oh, okay. both podcast and just like, I don't know, me making music. How do you unwind? Do you drink up broken hearts while you wait for yours to ossify? Is that where it starts? In open fields and sunny skies. sound that good. <laughs> too, much, too much output. Yeah. <laughs> too much unfinished output. Most of those are But like, I mean, that's how things happen, right? So yeah, it's good. Yeah. 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 I have a bone to pick with banana. But <laughs> yeah. I keep showing him songs. Finish. I'm like, hey, do you think this is cool? He's like, yeah. I'm like, cool. I'm not finishing it. I'm like, Ben, I'm refusing to get committed to this because you're not going to be committed to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. I'm glad you joined us today in the Room of Lives. Take care until next time.